Good evening and Happy New Year. It's, uh, excuse me, I have a little bit of a flu, so I will excuse you if you don't want to greet me after the service. Um, and I, uh, I will try to speak into the microphone so you can hear me. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, my parents flew us in. Uh, we hadn't been home for Christmas in four years. And uh, they were really wanting us uh, to see their, more of the grandkids than us, of course. But uh, they were very delighted to have them. And so um, because of that, we got to come here for a few days. And uh, as we entered Winston-Salem, it just it felt like home. And my kids commented on just how good it felt to be here. And uh, this church is a huge reason why. Um, you've always welcomed us. You supported us. We couldn't be on the mission field without you. And so I want to say a huge thank you for that. And as been said, you know, we, we run a missionary kids' school. Um, about, about half of our students will um, go on to be missionaries themselves. Uh, you go, when you grow up on the mission field, uh, it gets in your blood. Um, and we have, we have the embassies of Oman and Pakistan and Saudi Arabia uh, that come to our school. Uh, around 50% of the Muslims who attend our school uh, come to Christ. Um, so that's been fun and unique. And it is uh, the stable place. Most of the people whom we serve could not be on the field. Um, and so it is both a place for missions to take place and for missionaries to be able to remain on the field because we exist. We're actually forming feeder schools in every city in West Africa now. That is our goal so that we can support missionaries better. So we'll be moving into places like Burkina Faso and Mali and, um, as well as Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire. Um, well, back on to my topic tonight. Um, you know, if I, if I somehow preach a good sermon, I know without a doubt one of the first people to be delighted would be Ben. Why? Is because he cares for me. We're good friends. So if by some miracle my sermon is good, he would be rejoicing because he glories in me as a friend. And of course, more importantly, he wants to see Christ lifted up. If, even more likely, my sermon is a little mediocre, he will still see the good in it, make me feel good because he cares for me, and offer a few suggestions, and he'll have kind eyes, so to speak, because there is no envy between us as friends. I delight in that. There's no envy there. And as a side note, I'd like to say I, I love this about small churches because you know the person singing, you know the person preaching, and that allows it to be a safe place to grow in those areas. Right? If you're preaching, if you're singing, because you know when you love them, and so it's safe to mess up. And if you're not that great, you still care for them, because you know the person. So that's a nice thing about small churches. However, there's one thing in my own heart, and that exists in every church and every community that can destroy that safety. And that's envy. Envy can make it not a safe place, or jealousy. These verses, however, model a humility and a thankfulness that show us a right way to respond to when envy crops up in our hearts and jealousy crops up in our hearts. And I want to concentrate on these three verses in this passage. I'm going to use the three verses to flesh out kind of John's argument. He once says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He tells us he must increase, I must decrease. And then he says, uh, also therefore this joy of mine is now complete. And those are going to be kind of my three points, kind of going off of three main points he makes in this. So we have a situation 
where Jesus is starting to eclipse, to take over John's ministry. And John's disciples come up to him and point this out. Verse 26, look, he is baptizing and they're all going to him. And John responds with this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This is the first foundational truth for thankfulness rather than envy. Because, see, envy cannot exist when you realize everything you have is a gift. Envy relies on a sense of injustice and unfairness to make its case. I grew up in the Midwest, and there's this Midwest ethic that says if you just work hard, you're going to be successful. And there's certainly truth in that. If you're lazy, you're probably not going to prosper. And it takes hard work to do anything in life. But hard work is not something we should feel proud about because it should just be expected. We're to work hard. If you want anything in life, yeah, yeah, you have to work hard. That's for sure. But even if you work hard... It doesn't mean you get ahead. And God doesn't owe you anything just because you work hard. See, I often love, I, I, I teach on occasion, and I love to tell a story. Um, when I was in the Peace Corps, I was building a school for my village, and uh, I was on a very, very tight budget. I had $12,000 to build a three-room schoolhouse with benches and everything else. We actually did it, $12,000. And uh, I had to move two tons of rock, three miles. And so I go up to my Martinian mother. I, I was staying, I was living in a mud hut at the time, I lived there for two and a half years. And I was just getting her advice. I was saying, you know, where, who could I find to move this two tons of rock? Um, I need to move it, you know, it's a few miles. I need to move it to where the school is so they can build it. And she said, well, how much money do you have to do that? And I said, well, about $15. $15. $15. And just, you know, because I've seen that she can find a horse pulled cart or something. And she says, Rob, I'll do it. Why are you going to do that? And so she did. She, moved, she just put it on top of her head, bucket by bucket. And over three months, she moved two tons of rock. Wow, $15. I, had a, um, I also tell, while building the school, we budgeted $2 a day for laborers and everyone in the, in the village. Was a, uh, wanted to work because it was $2 a day. And uh, we had a guy who um, started working, and he, uh, you know, as he was doing his work, he got a blister, but he wanted to continue because he wanted to make sure he got that $2. Well, the blister got deeper and deeper until it went to his bone. He did that for $2 a day. And I share these stories with you because if you have riches, yeah, you worked hard. But so did many, many people who are not rich. And so the real reason you have it is it's a gift. It's a gift. Right away, John is telling us the whole self-made man thing, it's a myth. This is true of all things, including spiritual ones. To put it in simple terms, gift, when treated, is something that makes me more special, more important, will puff me up. And I've, I've, I have a lot of ways this happens in my own life. Um, you know, a while back, I actually used to be really good at writing newsletters before I became the headmaster of the school. I had time, and I would think of these insights. 
And that was great. God gave me insights, and that's wonderful to share, and I enjoyed that. But you know what started to creep in is I started to think, you know, the real reason I'm funded is because I write such good newsletters. Yeah. And, you know, then he gave me a job where I have no time to write newsletters. And thank goodness you guys are generous to me anyway. So I appreciate that. Um, I see that with reading. I, I love to read. You know, I've always been kind of a voracious reader and, and love picking up books. And so I, I was uh, discussing my love of reading with my sister-in-law over Christmas break. And she has three kids and does consultancy work. And she reads 50 books a year. And I gotta say, well, as she said that, you know, there was this, this, this uh, popped in my mind, well, wow, you know, this, this little bit of envy, you know, like, uh, wow, I, I could do that too. And, and rather than rejoicing and just understanding, enjoying a good book and enjoying the wisdom that learning imparts, you know, it's just so easy to go there. See, anything that puffs us up should be avoided like the flu. So if you have money, it's because God gave it to you. If you have a good job, it's because God gave it to you. If you have a good marriage, it's because God gave it to you. If you have good kids, it's because God gave it to you. If you have a good ministry, it's because God gave it to you. Certainly, it's because you worked hard. Many other people have worked hard for a good marriage and don't have one. Many people have worked hard for good kids, and it didn't work out. And many people have worked hard in ministry and it didn't work out. So if you do have something, it is always a gift. Now this is not more true, but perhaps even most important to realize in ministry because ministry is a mercy that is given to an unworthy Christian based upon God's grace alone. In other words, if someone comes to Christ because of you, Yes, you were faithful. But I can tell you, being in Senegal, I run to missionaries all the time. I've worked for 25 years. And I've seen very, very little fruit. That's a gift, too. So if you've been successful, God gives the success. And if ministry is over, it's God turning it off. John is telling us, Everything you've received is from God. So let me repeat this because it's a wonderful mantra. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Then John goes on to say a famous verse, quite famous because it's so opposed to human normal reaction. He says, and you all know this very, very well, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, of course, we normally think the normal reaction would have been, I must increase and you can decrease. Or if we're feeling perhaps very generous, you can increase as I increase. But here is the truth that Jesus will shine brighter as we decrease. In ministry, as I mentor someone, my hope is that their awe of me decreases and their love of Jesus increases. Whenever people worship the pastor or the minister or the missionary, something is wrong, something is corrupt. And that's often the situation where the pastor or the missionary falls because God humbles the proud. One thing I love about Margie, 
is she pulls no punches. If she's struggling, you know it. There's no pretense. And I love that because I think it helps the congregation here not worship the Milners, but worship Jesus. John was humbled, so he realized his ministry time was nearing the end, and he wasn't sad about it. He was not close to retirement. It wasn't retirement age, but his appointed time was over. And so he knew he had to decrease. Success for John the Baptist was not defined by the size of the crowd. It was, designed, it was dis- defined by how faithful he was to the mission God had given him to accomplish. At the end of our lives, the same thing should be true for us. Like Jesus said, John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Paul says this in Acts 20, 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. One truth we must realize like John the Baptist is everything is for a time. The ministry God gives us is always temporary. The power, if he gives us it, it will go away at some point. No matter how big your how powerful, how strong your leadership, you will have to give it away. And one of the big hindrances to ministry is an unwillingness to do that. <laughs> Ironically, right before um, this message, you know, God loves to convict you. So I had a family visit me that I served with in Uganda about an hour before this service. And it reminded me of, uh, of a time in, in, in Uganda where I became upset. I had worked in getting a church going, a church plan going, and someone else took credit for it. And that made me mad that they were taking credit for it. So, like, it created tension. And that tension created conflict on our admin team over in Uganda. Oftentimes, ministry can only flourish when we don't need the credit. I was convicted. Here, I had, I had hindered God moving forth because I was worried about me getting the credit for a church plan. When you see a great saint in the Bible, you'll see this thing. Moses, for example, Numbers eleven twenty six. Two men, excuse my pronunciation, I'm bad with Old Testament names. Eldad and Medad had stayed in the camp and they were listed as leaders, but they did not leave camp to go to the tent. Still the spirit rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who would become the future leader of the Israelites, said, Moses, master, stop them. But Moses said, are you jealous for me? Would that all God's people were prophets. And you remember the apostle Paul in prison, Philippians 1, 14, 18. Paul is in jail. He's in chains. And people are going around preaching. And they're preaching everywhere. And, and Paul says, hey, look, um, I realize they're not doing it for the right motives. But he's not upset. He's not thinking, hey, they're hogging my area or they're taking the spotlight. He says instead, and he, even, he knows that even though they have lousy mountains, but they said, as long as they preach Christ and he's exalted, I am content. 
See, we have to get out of the way in our ministry so we can see God. People can see God more clearly. We want to point to God, not eclipse him. And it's hard to do it because, hey, if I preach well or mentor well, we get this praise and praise feels really good. And we can end up praising ourselves rather than Jesus. And so John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And you remember, Jesus called John the greatest man who was born of a woman. John also says this peculiar statement. All right. When he finds out everyone is now going to Jesus, not him, he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John uses this illustration that he's the friend of the bridegroom. Therefore, his joy is complete when the marriage happens. It'd be a terrible best man if he was hidden on the bride, rather than doing all he can to make sure the wedding went well. I'm sure Stephen's best man wasn't doing that. So much joy comes from taking our eyes off of ourselves and focusing them on the good of others and God. In fact, it's a key to joy is getting lost in someone else, especially God. That's what worship is. Not thinking about ourselves, but taking our eyes off of ourselves. And this is a very simple principle. If we are only joyful for our own success, how much does it limit our happiness? But if we're genuinely joyful for the success of others, how much this increases our opportunities to be joyful? It's been said, one of my favorite Tim Keller quotes is, Envy weeps because of those who are rejoicing and rejoices because they're weeping. This Christmas, kids, did you rejoice at the presents your friends received? If they got a new cell phone, were you happy for them? Can you genuinely delight for your neighbor's good fortune if it's material? Because envy has this ability to suck the joy out of life. And, you know, one thing which really is concerning in a pornographic culture with all of the images out there is envy also destroys many of our ladies and women's ability to appreciate their own body. We live in a culture that makes us envy the beautiful or this ideal of what that beautiful is. And so there are some of you who hate the way you look because envy has destroyed it or poisoned it. Now, the opposite is, it's when you're at a game and you're cheering for a team that represents your school, your town, or community. You get, incredibly, you get incredibly excited about when someone does good because their glory is in part your glory. The same is true in our faith. As Jesus is exalted and lifted up, his glory becomes our glory. If my son was winning a championship, I can feel more proud then if I win, why? Because I'm connected. I share in my son's glory. When Christ is glorified, we share in that glory. Do you remember Romans 8.30? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, there's a scary verse that represents the exact opposite of what John is doing here. It's Matthew 27.18. Jesus observes 
that the reason why he's being crucified, he says this in Matthew 27, 18, he says, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Rather than see Jesus as a hope for healing and salvation, they were in competition with him. And they were competing against God. They lost. And it made them feel horrible. And we do too. That's our natural nature. In other words, the reason people crucified Jesus is they were jealous. Rather than see him as their savior, they saw him as competition. Well, how can we get over this? What can empower us? How can we be empowered to not envy? How can we be empowered to be like John and say, I must decrease, he must increase. And I think, again, it is realizing that there never was a person who decreased more than Jesus himself. Jesus took human form. That was decrease. Jesus was born into a poor family. That was a decrease. Jesus allowed Pontius Pilate to whip and crucify him. That was decrease. He allowed people to mock him and spit upon him. That was decrease. And he did that so that we might all increase in our relationship with him. To be brought into relationship with him. So as we Meditate on and believe the facts that Jesus decreased so that we might increase. We too can do the same. Let me pray for us. Lord, we don't naturally want to decrease. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see more clearly how you did decrease for us. I pray that that would touch our hearts and move us so that we would be willing to get out of the way, that we would be willing to be less in order that you might become more in other people's lives, that you would save us from envy and then the joy destruction that causes and help us to glorify when other people succeed and are successful, when other ministries succeed and are successful. In your name we pray, amen.